the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Bonjour à tous. Hello, my name's Richard Moore. I'm with Daniel Freib. Hello, Richard. And Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. Very impressive, that. Thank you, Lionel. Um, listen, uh, we are here gathered for our third week of looking back on the season that's just finished. And uh, we have looked at the classics in the last two episodes. This week, we're looking back at the, the Grand Tours, but with a fresh look back at them, I must say. We've got some clips from our episodes from the three Grand Tours, and we'll be looking back at the Giro, the Tour, and the Vuelta, and hearing from some riders and sports directors as well. So that's all coming up. Lionel, what are you looking like that for? Well, I mean, you say clips. I mean, that that's not no. really giving it the big sell. I mean, th these are the audio equivalent. <laughs> if, if we were a... I don't know, some kind of Hollywood blockbuster movie. These are the equivalent of the, the kind of retrospective also, did, trailer. When I did think. sports you know, directors replace director sportifs on the cycling oh, podcast here we go. style here guide? Here we go. I missed that. Clips masterfully put together, beautifully put together, um, bringing some of the highlights, bringing some of the flavor, the atmosphere, and the excitement back from the Grand Tours. Daniel, how are your legs? They're fine. Let's, Thank let's you, kick Richard. kick off with the most important <laughs> question of the week. No, they're because absolutely fine. Really, because you ran, you you did a big old uh, run at the weekend, didn't you? Well, it was a race, Richard. It was an event. It wasn't just a whimsical, oh. you know, trot. Um, a whimsical trot. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't doing, you know, bark no. rubbings every ten. Whimsical miles, trotting. Um, how did you get on? I mean, tell us the distance and and how long you took, Daniel. And I hope well, you won. Rich, if it was a race, uh, no, I no point in taking part in, if, uh, if you didn't I, I, I could... win. I competed in an ultramarathon, my first ever ultramarathon called the uh, Travesa Tramontana in, in no, sorry, it's called the Tramontana Travesa in uh, Mallorca. And it was 65 kilometers, uh, 2,200 and something meters of climbing. Um, although my Strava didn't get all of them. And yeah. I think I was 83rd out of 176. Um, so in the yeah. top half on general oh, classification. Mid middle of the... Yeah. Middle of the field. Yeah. Sort of sat up, really, haven't you? <laughs> just uh, co coasting round by the well, way, Mark. Well, no, it, very impressive. Well done. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, and, and you cope with it okay. I mean, you say your first, but will it be your last? No, I don't think it will be my last. Um, came out of it quite well, actually. It was, um, wasn't as gruelling as I imagined. It was quite enjoyable. Should have gone harder then. <laughs> <laughs> Here, before we uh, get on to the news roundup for this week, because there is a bit of news, um, we, we're calling this series Anus Galaxicus. Next week, we're doing a press conference. Do send us your uh, questions for that at contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Service Course are also doing a press conference next week, so send any tech questions, bike, clothing, anything at all related to bikes, equipment, etc. to also the same address, Market for Service Course, and Lizzie Banks and Tom Wally. We'll answer those questions. We certainly won't answer those questions, or if we do, we'll probably answer them incorrectly. Um, but, Lionel, a few people have asked or questioned our, our title for the series, Anus Galaxicus. Can you explain what it means? Well, it was Daniel's idea, wasn't it? I mean, first of all, your fluency uh, in Latin, Daniel, will come in real handy when we want to interview the winner of the... <laughs> 
128 AD Giro. Um, <laughs> if you remember, that was the first Giro with an overseas Grande Partenza in Verulamium, which is now known as St. Albans, of course. Back then, in the Roman era, every stage was held on very, very straight gravel roads. So the racing was both boring and extremely exciting at the same time. Uh, they all rode naked, of course. So back then, was Alejandro Valverde riding? <laughs> speaking, <laughs> they, spe- speaking a of gravel suit roads, really was a skin suit. Speaking of gravel roads, I got some intel the other day about the forthcoming. I don't know when it's taking place. I think in February, the Saudi Tour, which is run um, run by ASO, and some of the course information has been given to the the teams, and they've been. Um, putting this into their you know various types of software that they use and it appears that there's about seven kilometers going to be ridden of one stage straight across the desert through the sand and with no discernible road um in evidence it it looks very much like it's going to be well a a gravel stage off-road stage a desert stage the first first i guess of its type not good for chain that is it no uh, sand, sand and. They probably build a road. Probably just, they probably just haven't built a road just yet. Be there by yeah. February. Um, but seriously, um, the Galacticos in well, it's a football reference originally, isn't it? Because Real Madrid at the start of this century uh, signed four of the best players in the world in consecutive seasons. I think it was anyway. Luis Figo, Zinedine Zidane, the original Ronaldo, the Brazilian player, and David Beckham. And the thing Originaldo. I, Originaldo, yeah. And David Beckham. And it wasn't just that they were great footballers, but they were also, um, you know, real um, superstars. I suppose they were in the... the they transcended the their sports, Lionel. They, they transcended their sports. Yeah, they were in the place where sporting excellence and sort of marketability overlapped. And I think that that is to a greater and in some cases lesser degree what we meant by the Galacticos in cycling. You know, Wout van Aert, Matthew van der Poel, um, now Tadej Pogacar, uh, Julian Alaphilippe, um, and they kind of split, don't they, into three one-day Galacticos and three Grand Tour Galacticos. Pogacar, Pavel Sivakov a Galactico, Daniel. <laughs> well, um, well, it was also it was also a reference to the general quality of the the racing, wasn't it, um, chaps? Even when one of the Galacticos wasn't necessarily starring in a particular race, the 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 racing itself was often um we felt intergalactic well it was yeah it was elevated to a superior plane out of this world extraterrestrial well that's you've done a very good job of explaining that lionel congratulations well done um can we crack on before we get to the 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 grand tours looking back on on those can we uh can we have the news roundup please we can we can indeed uh well uh, really shocking news actually released by mark cavendish on his social media channels um this week he reported that he and his family had endured an armed robbery at their home in essex at the end of november cavendish and his wife and four children threatened at knife point by four masked men who took two watches of great sentimental value if you look that up on uh, social media there's also a crime number so if in the unlikely event that you know anything about that well Somebody out there will know something about it. Um, Obviously, Cavendish is very keen to uh, find out who perpetrated that act. A real shocker and something that has happened to high-profile sports people in Britain before. There was a spate of 
top footballers whose homes were targeted. But usually that was when the players were out. People would uh, take advantage of the fact that the players were away playing in matches to target their homes. But this is all the more shocking because Cavendish and his family were at home. Cavendish also in the news because the news has been confirmed that he is staying with Quickstep for one more year. And another significant bit of transfer news, Tish Banut, who... We got wind of the fact that he was likely to leave Team GSM. He is joining Jumbo Visma for two years. Uh, the track Champions League has concluded with two rounds in London because the Tel Aviv round has been cancelled because of the Omicron variant of coronavirus. And in London, Katie Archibald won the women's endurance title. Gavin Hoover of the USA won the men's endurance title. And Harry Lavrason and Emma Heinzer won the sprint championships. The cyclocross has seen the return of Wout van Aert and he came back with a bang. He won the boom round of the Super Prestige by a minute and three quarters ahead of Toon Ertz, who has been, well, well, he's been locked in the battle with Ellie Isabit in the cyclocross so far, but had no answer to Van Aert. Van Aert could even afford a late fall in the mud. Meanwhile, Matthew van der Poel has injured his knee while training. Uh, he fell off his bike and he's missed a couple of days of Alpecin Fenix's training camp in Spain, but he's expected to start his cross season on schedule with the World Cup round on December the 18th. A bit more De Kerning news and Alpacin Fenix News, because De Kernink is joining Alpacin Fenix as a co-sponsor, citing Patrick Lefebvre's reluctance to get involved in women's cycling as a factor. However, in a twist, Lefebvre's company, Esperanza, is to sponsor a Dutch women's development team, NXTG. It does look like the end of the road for Quebec and Next Hash, who have not been given a World Tour or a Pro Tour license by the UCI. And the woman who held up the Ale Opi Omi sign that caused that big crash on the opening day of the Tour de France has been fined €1,200 for endangering others and causing unintentional injuries. She'll also pay a symbolic euro to the French Union of Professional Cyclists. According to her lawyer, the woman has been fragile for many years and, well that was obvious when she went into hiding for four days before reporting to local police and her identity has not been disclosed by the court to protect her from further online abuse so that unfortunate incident i think we can now draw a line under it's, it's been brought to a conclusion the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches and now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Uh, we're very appreciative of their support across all our podcasts. All the shows that we do are uh, title sponsored by Super Sapiens. So thanks to them. And uh, Super Sapiens, of course, is the system that offers uh, continuous glucose monitoring. You wear a patch on your arm and uh, the information uh, relating to your blood glucose levels can be transmitted onto your, your phone or onto your um bike computer. Let's hear a little bit more about Super Sapiens and the origins of Super Sapiens from its founder and chief executive, Phil Sutherland. Wintertime is going to be crucial for us. And you know, it's look, we're, we're still a relatively new company. We've been on market for six months. So my engineering team in the background, we've just launched a dashboard so that you know the nutritionist of Jumbo or coach of Jumbo can 
look at all of their athletes and their glucose data overlaid with training data. Now, that's taking a lot of work on the back end for us, but it's going to make it a lot more systematic in how teams can use it and how athletes can understand their data. And of course, guys putting the sensor on, then taking it off, then going to race, and then, you know, it's, it's a bit cumbersome, frankly. So looking to the wintertime, the athletes will be able to wear them for months at a time and really get to understand their, their body, their fueling needs, and look to next season to be better versions of themselves. Well, chaps, without further ado, let's take ourselves back to Italy in May. wonderful to hear that music again, isn't it, Daniel, the familiar, now familiar, um, Amaratera. How many years is that? Is this our... A few. Six years. Six Giro with Amaratera Cozzi as our soundtrack. Daniele Fibrancini. And we're also joined by a mystery guest tonight, and he's sitting here, uh, Brian Nygaard. Hello, Brian. Hey, Jeffs. Thank you for having me. So, I'm, I'm just to make sure I understand here, are we drinking two different champagnes? It is just the start, and I'm really happy to, to be here. So, Herbie, most importantly, we're in Turin, and we're in Athia. Where are you taking me? Okay, so we're going to the Fausto Coffee Monument on Corso Casale. Even by your standards, Daniel, this, this is a is bit mysterious. weird. There's some big, big stuffed animals, but no cobra. No cobra, but he might be coming. I was no tourist. For better or worse, I had business in the Abruzzo. My destination was the remote town of Castel di Sangro, which some contend means castle of blood in the local dialect. Okay, here goes. not that hard. even and I consider myself is uh, in the form of my life. Tom sales campanets, in your case, come on, let's three the bonds, Kukelere, Roger de Vlaming, and the favorite. The model is. The uh, <coughs> is an easy one. Axel Merckx, Eddie Merckx, trouble with the accents. You didn't say it right. That's what all the flambos say every single day. You didn't say it right. Well, it's amazing who you bump into at the, at the Giro, Daniel, isn't it? We've, uh, well, you, you contacted us a couple of days ago, the acting ambassador uh, to Italy for the US. Um, I wasn't quite sure how to address you, Tom, or dear acting ambassador, but you told me Tom. Yes, it's definitely Tom. Oh, Rich, good morning. Promise me an adventure, Daniel. Anyone who thinks that today's not dangerous, that today's not tricky, yeah, they can do Well, do you know what awaits you, Rich? I'm giving you a, li- a little briefing. Well, you told me it's a very steep road. Europe's steepest road. Well, it's been described as the hardest climb in the world. And yeah. And then, and then the joke of the day was we finish up. I'll be the murder. Mobile phones flying right on. Vincenzo Nibali. Vincenzo Nibali second over the summit ridge. And here come uh, Peloton. About what, 20, 30 seconds behind. 
Lorenzo, Lucky Lorenzo, Lucky Lorenzo. An aging rock star, leather trousers, balding long hair, violent, lots of spies, lots of intrigue, lots of, um, you know, cross-border conspiracies and tunnels and things like that. If I said to you, you could pay an amount of money not to ride Lodzonkolan today, how much would you pay? <laughs> I want you to really think about this. Nah, no, it's not too hard like, like that. So I think uh, if, if I need to show one stage in this Giro, I show, I show the one of Monday. It's uh, really something really hard for us, for a sprinter. How much money would you pay not to ride that one? Probably... Thousand. <laughs> Looking a lot of uh, Colombian flags everywhere, and uh, all people uh, cheering uh, for me. are these your fans? I can hear the chanting, the air horns. A, a lot of people think that these fans are for Bernal, but as a matter of fact, they're for me. <laughs> Well, that was very evocative, uh, but did it bring it all back for you two? Well, it certainly did, Lionel. It was, a, it was a fantastic adventure for us. I think we made that clear at the time. And um, it wasn't a particularly great race, I didn't think. I mean, I was quite critical of the race um, at the time of the spectacle and took pelters, took a few custard pies for that on social media. Um, I felt, as I said repeatedly during the Giro, that there were there were... There was fertile ground for a fantastic, very aggressive race. And we didn't necessarily get that on, well, certainly not every day and certainly not to the extent that we did later in the Tour and the Vuelta. But I suppose, you know, just to go back in time, go right back and sort of just review what we were expecting of the Giro. And we really thought it was going to be uh, what we hoped that it might be bit of a battle royale between Egan Bernal, a sort of resurgent Egan Bernal after his fairly unsatisfactory Tour de France and injury hit Tour de France in 2020. And Remco Evenepoel, who himself was coming back from the terrible crash he'd had in the Giro di Lombardia the previous year and hadn't raced, had he, before the Giro, but he had found the time to sign a a new five-year contract with the Koenig Quickstep on April the the sixth, and that really, well, it was a, a statement of intent from from that team, and it really reflected Evenepoel's status. You know, there was so much talk. We talked so much in the spring about the Galacticos and this fantastic emerging generation. We'd had this incredible spectacle of them all sort of coming together um, at Strade Bianche and the one rider I guess who was missing from that was Evenepoel and we thought that him re-emerging at the Giro would well that would sort of complete the cadre of these fantastic new talents and it didn't quite work out like that did it? No the, excite, the excitement in, in the start of the Giro was a lot of it around revolving around Evenepoel's Grand Tour debut and there was mystery too because he'd been out for so long and you felt that if the team felt confident enough to put him in the race that he would at least be a factor because you know since he turned pro 2019 he has confounded uh, expectations he's he's always uh, risen to whatever challenge has been in front of him and and you know done things that we haven't expected 
And I think that that opening time trial in uh, Turin suggested that, you know, we were going to see something special from Evan Nepal because, you know, he was right up there and in contention. And I said at the time, you know, these, these short time trials are often a, a great indicator of form. And it looked as though um, Evan Nepal was in really great condition. But it was a bit of a magical mystery tour, wasn't it, for him and for us, because we just didn't know how he was going to get on when when we got into the the high mountains. And we got into some pretty challenging stages quite early on. And quite early on, we knew that he wasn't probably going to contend for the win, at least. And, you know, there were moments, remember, he went for a bonus sprint with Bernal one day. And the, what I remember the most about Evan the Pot the Giro is just the way he carried himself every morning in the mix zone, uh, with always with a press officer chaperoning him. And the sense he gives is of somebody who uh, is already uh, a, a star and somebody in demand. And he's very sort of aware of that and very conscious of that. And and that's kind of, because we were talking the other day about this, Daniel, there were other riders you remember from the mix zone uh, exuding a, a very different uh, type of confidence or relaxedness i'm thinking of alberto bettiel in particular but even the pole came in every day like the star that every everybody was going to hang on his, his everywhere to an even greater extent than bernal and and that's kind of my abiding memory of even the pole the giro i mean you say rich that it became quite clear fairly early that he wasn't going to contend but actually the the sort of illusion was more the suspense was suspense was maintained longer than i actually remembered because um, well, there was the stage to Sestalai in absolutely rotten weather, which Joe Dombrowski won, I think it was stage four. And Joao Almeida, who was de Koenig's other card, lost time there. And that really, you know, that that sort of cleared the path for Vaynerpool to to be their leader, if, if there was any doubt about that. But then, you know, the, the pick of the, the stages, as far as I was concerned, I mean, I, I look back over them, um, I've looked back over them over the last week, and, uh, and the pick as far I think was probably the Strade Bianche stage. Um, that was also you know, the one we were most looking forward to on paper. And, you know, from uh, from a beautiful place, Perugia in Umbria, to another beautiful place, Mont- Montalcino. And I, I, I'd forgotten how close Remco was to the pink jersey um, as he went into that stage. He was 14 seconds behind. And really, the race was still wide open at that point. Vlasov was only 22 seconds um, behind, I, I said Almeida had been, well, he'd been dropped already. Yates was 56 seconds behind Simon Yates. He still had big ambitions. But then we went into that day and Filippo Ganna, who, as you said, Rich, he'd been, well, he'd been the, the, the home hero of the, the prologue or the, the opening time trial. And he'd won there. And then he smashed the race to pieces on the, on the gravel, the first gravel so, section, the first major gravel here. section. This is a real opportunity for Egan Bernal to distance young Remco Evenepoel. And Remco Evenepoel can now not see the pink jersey. It's 20 seconds down and growing as now Bernal puts in another dig on the uphill. He was on the radio there just as Almeida was dropping back. And, of course, we were asking the question about Almeida now then. He's not happy about something. He is absolutely angry about something. Earpiece has been ripped out. There's going to be a lot of digging for us to do tonight, Dan. Remco was dropped immediately, then he came back. And then you had this fantastic sort of cold war between Joao Almeida and Remco where we had to sort of infer from body language what 
was going on between them, how well they were or weren't communicating. There was there was a moment where Remco sort of took out his his earpiece and, and sort of threw it um, or cast it aside and Almeida looked disgruntled as well. And that was that was one of the great subplots, certainly of the middle part of the race, wasn't it? But as you said, Rich, that that really exposed the chinks in Remco's armour. And there was this sense throughout the Giro and it was exacerbated by the fact there was such a, a big Belgian press pack there. There was this sense of drama around him all the time, this sort of febrile... Um, almost, almost melodrama around him, um, which throughout yeah, the which only continued. And yeah, that Montalcino stage, it, it seemed to be a question also of bike handling for him there, as much as as fitness. And yeah, that question of whether it was the right thing for Almeida to go back from him that they became more pronounced as as the race went on. Obviously, I, I mean that was a wonderful stage, wasn't it? The Montalcino stage. Um, we had dinner that evening with Patrick Lefebvre, didn't we, in a hotel called Jurassic Park? It wasn't. It wasn't really called Jurassic <laughs> Park. Um, but we did have dinner in the same uh, establishment as Patrick Lefebvre that evening, and it had been, uh, yeah, a, a, a very disappointing day. And you know, he was a writer, and, and we're not talking about Evan Paul because the Giro isn't really about him. But he he was a writer for whom. You know, he had the he, he seemed to have the Midas touch until that terrible crash at Il Lombardia last year and you know we we saw a different side of him at the Giro I think when things didn't go so well and that that kind of set the the, the pattern in a way for his season and it came to head perhaps at the world championships but that Montalcino stage also is worth mentioning for Bernal's performance I mean we'd seen him at Strada Bianca put in this amazing performance with the other Galacticos and he backed that up didn't he at the uh on, on the on the the gravel roads there um by riding in a a very, very impressive way indeed. A, a little b- bonus quiz, Daniel. Do you remember who he got away with on that stage? Uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Buchmann. Yeah, another rider who had a very I disappointing think. year, almost a forgotten man. But that day seemed to show that he was right. We should also mention Mika Landa crashed out um, the day after Dombrowski's stage when D- Joe was involved in a, in a terrible crash, hitting a bollard in the middle of the road. That took out Landa and that, that cost him his Giro. And this was a bit of a theme of the season as well, that in the absence of the, the Bahrain leader, uh, his deputy stepped up. And in this case, it was Damiano Caruso, who was the sort of, at his, at his relatively advanced age, the revelation probably of the race. You mentioned Simon Yates. And, you know, for him to finish on the podium eventually was, uh, I, I, you know, snatching a, a sort of victory from the jaws of defeat because he had been also very erratic in the race. And uh, I spoke to Matt White about that recently. They, they had a terrible season team bike exchange and his podium place at the Giro was arguably the highlight, but it was achieved in f- far from ideal circumstances. Um, and yeah, I think uh, a bit of a write-off of a season for them and not... not um, not a great, I mean, you know, Daniel, it's sometimes difficult in the in the moment, and we were there the whole Giro, to be detached from the just the, the, the sort of drama and the intrigue, because there is always that in a, in a Grand Tour that's going on, and to be sort of objective and, and detached about the race. Um, but if you made an effort to do that, you could, you could see that it wasn't a vintage uh, race. And when we look back now and you look at that podium in particular, um, you think... Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't one one for the ages, perhaps. 
No, I mean, I'll ask Lionel in, in a second what he made of it, sort of, and certainly with a few months hindsight. But, you know, just in when we come to analyse Grand Tours and particularly, you know, the, the fonder we are of a, of a certain race and, you know, we've, we're very much attached sort of sentimentally to the Giro every year. But um, it, we look for a sort of rhythm and a kind of musicality almost to the three weeks and a sort of... There, there was a vibrancy and a, almost even, you know, aesthetically, there were there were a few days which I sort of look back on as classic Giro days where, you know, the, the, the vineyards and the fields were greener and the sun was brighter and the sky was bluer. And, and that to me sort of screams Giro d'Italia. And there were a few of those days, the Strade Bianche stage was one of them, the day, the day that Betio won um, in Stradella was another one. But um, the, there is also something when the Giro well, mountain stages are curtailed, cut short, postponed. And we had one, or we had the queen stage this year. It wasn't only sort of cut short, but we also couldn't see it because the, I forget the problem, was it the Rye helicopters couldn't get up. So we didn't see Egan Bernal's sort of race-defining attack, his most spectacular attack of the Giro. And I think in the... The, the, the sort of legacy or the final kind of analysis of this Giro will will reflect that and, and it loses some of its luster um, because of that, because, you know, the, the, the sort of masterpiece of Bernal's Giro wasn't really seen by, well, it wasn't seen by anyone. Emerging from our black spot. Emerging from the darkness, down the mountain, out of the mist, and ready to show off his colours is the Maya Rosa. It's Egan Bernal who's going to win a high mountain stage of a Grand Tour. Up there in the Dolomites, those pink-tainted mountains belong to the pink jersey. Yeah, I mean, obviously I wasn't there. I was very much podcasting Ala Zubeldia this year, uh, but I watched the whole race, and I think the first half was really intriguing because of Evanapol's presence in the race. I mean, the, the mind boggled really at the thought of a team pinning everything around a Grand Tour debutant. As talented and as brilliant as he is and has shown since the Giro with these, you know, almost, uh, Daniel, you, you used the phrase PlayStation cycling type um, attacks that he is uh, very fond of. You know, clearly a, a world-class talent, but we know that the Grand Tours are about caution and conservative riding when it matters and picking moments and experience. And I suppose they played their cards badly uh, because it would have been much better. Obviously, Almeida had faltered, hadn't he? But they had an opportunity to, with a bit of clear thinking, uh, not make such a mess of the Montalcino stage on the, the white roads. I mean, they were in disarray really that day. And it, with a bit of perhaps experience, because both of them very inexperienced Grand Tour riders and, you know, the pressure was on and the terrain was difficult and the weather was terrible um, and they really lost their way that day. And then once Evanapool was out of the picture, it looked for a moment like uh, Vlasov might be the next contender and he's looked very good in isolation at times over the past 18 months or so. But he faltered as well. And so it was one of those grand tours where Egan Bernal was clearly the best rider, but there was no real credible sustained um, challenge mounted against him. And even Damiano Caruso in the final couple of mountain stages, I mean, gave it absolutely everything he had. And 
for a rider like Caruso, who the suspicion has always been when his team has been in a good position, he's perhaps not always stuck to the team plan and has ridden perhaps more for himself than he should have done. You know, when given the opportunity to strike out for himself, did really try to do that. But Bernal is a class above somebody like Caruso. And it was, uh, even though the time gap only a minute and 42, I think, at the finish of the Giro, you know, it was never it was never one of great suspense. And I suppose that's, when you look at the names in the top 10, you think that's a real um, kind of star-studded top 10 with a couple of breakthrough ride, breakout riders in there as well. But there was no real sense of momentum that was really going to unsettle Bernal. And it was, I, I think, a, a comfortable Grand Tour win. And of course, when it's comfortable, um, you know, it does rob the race of some of that um, drama. And I don't think that there were quite the uh, outstanding stages either, that particularly when the Tour de France followed it. And we'll talk about that in the next part. But um, it, it wasn't a sort of uh, vintage Giro d'Italia, but it was a, a good absorbing watch. Rich, any highlights, any non-cycling highlights? Um, did that montage bring back any vivid memories for you of, you know, of, of adventures, hijinks, great hotels? We stayed in some cracking hotels. I was revisiting our our booking list earlier had some good meals, some nice wine. Um, I was I was reminiscing fondly about the remember the restaurant ter- terrace in a place called Isera, just outside um, Trento, just outside Rovereto, with Brian Nygaard blowing the budget on a very expensive bottle of red. Um, that was became a bit of a theme, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I mean, I have to mention one highlight was was having Brian with us for for some of the Giro. We joined up with him in Turin. Oh, I see. And then, oh, I see. And then at the end as well, he was. Uh, well, you had to leave early, didn't you? So he he came and um, joined us for a couple of days, and then filled in once you had left for the the Dauphiné. Um, it took me to some places in Italy that I had not been to before. Um, one one place being Modena. I hadn't been there and. On the morning of that stage, I went for a, a wander around the town, and it's 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 beautiful. It's an, yet another of these beautiful Italian town cities that you that you um, that you only know the name of, really. And and it, the country is full of them. And I'm always every year at the Giro finding n- these new places. I mean, who who could also forget uh, Daniel uh, calling in on Ricardo Rico's uh, ice cream parlor? Unfortunately, the cobra wasn't wasn't there. There were lots of stuffed animals, uh, and we had a, the sweetest ice cream I've I've ever had in in my life. It made me feel quite ill actually, because I also ate it on an empty stomach. Um, but that was good. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Raj, raspberry ripple and EPO flavor. And then we had a yeah, oh goodness, we had a rest in in Canet Side, didn't we? Which was very nice indeed. It's beautiful, uh, beautiful town, and it was lovely to be there and just stop for a day in the dolomites and uh enjoy and enjoy that rest day so yeah it was it was good the first first full giro uh, i've done um and uh i enjoyed it a lot even though it wasn't the greatest race there was i mean just just on that i mean there was a the other you know we, we sort of called bernard one of the galacticos it it was a very convincing win but you know, it wasn't the sort of performance that you would that you would hold up against Pogacar's at the Tour, for example, or even Roglic's at the Vuelta, which we'll come to, um, because he, a the, the the competition wasn't wasn't perhaps there, but also he did falter a bit. There was a stage stage nineteen 
to Alpe de Mera, which Simon Yates won. And actually by then he was looking good. And and at his best, he looked as if he um, had the beating of Bernal, at least on that one day. And so it was a convincing win, but not one uh, that you would, as I say, hold up against the other two very convincing wins in the other two Grand Tours. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Beer 52. And usually a case from Beer 52 contains eight excellent craft beers. But if you sign up by December the 17th, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. All you have to do is cover the £5.95 postage cost. Go to beer52.com slash cycle and you will get your 10 free beers if you order before December the 17th. Beer 52 is a beer club like no other. They send their experts around the world to find the best beers available. And each month, members receive a new case. And each case is usually themed, so it focuses on a particular part of the world or a country. And it's coming up to Christmas, so perhaps order a case for yourself and one for a friend or family member who enjoys a range of different craft beers. One of the advantages of Beer 52's cases is that if you don't like dark beers, then you can simply choose the light option and avoid the stouts and uh, heavier IPAs. Uh, That's the option that I opt for. As well as the delicious beers, you'll receive Ferment Magazine, which delves into the breweries and the theme that they've chosen for that particular month. And you'll get two delicious snacks to wash down with the beer. After you've got your first free case, you'll be joining the monthly beer club for £24 a month, but there's no minimum commitment. You can pause or cancel at any time. So go to beer52.com slash cycle. That's B-E-E-R 52.com slash cycle. Cover the £5.95 postage and wait for your 10 free beers. Well, chaps, it's time to go back to the Tour de France and and a, 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 a different lineup for the cycling podcast at the Tour de France. Hello and welcome to the Cycling Podcast nightly coverage of the 2021 Tour de France. And I'm joined by two people who between them have covered 32 Tours de France. (laughs) Francois Tomaso. Hi there. And Kate Wagner. This is your first first Tour de France. Yes. A new voice on the Cycling Podcast. Kind of like came with like one mission, which was to talk to Tadej Pogacar and that never happened. So that's annoying. You know what else is annoying? Me. So I've hidden the crisps here because crisps are banned during the podcast. And they obviously didn't realise I've hidden them. And they brought another bowl of crisps. I can be this close to the Tour de France and have no idea what's actually going on. That's the beauty of the event, isn't it? Well, we thought he was finished, done, washed up. Yesterday's man. But today he arrived by train in Valence. But that's enough about Mark Cavendish. <laughs> Where are we, Lionel? Oh, hello, Richard. Hello, Francois. It's good Hi to there. be back. Yeah. I'm friends. Do you feel you're getting good value for money uh, from this Tour de France from Mark Cavendish then? Well, he is cheaper. I don't like to, to speak about next year, but if you are winning the 35th on the Champs-Élysées with the green jersey, you leave by the big door and not the back door. That is thousands of tons of steaming shit. <laughs> <laughs> when you're bringing in thousands of tons of steaming shit on the edge of a French village in your English. Okay, right. Oh, hello. <laughs> we did a nice, nice pace, a good attack from the back and closed the gap like real men. Then we went on to a load of different climbs, 
And then I think it was a third to last climb called the whatever. Mark Cavendish. Who's the unsung hero of the tour this year? As we knew that the time limit was going to be really tight, we really had to push him. Tim Declare. And also was a really nice gift from him uh, that he gave me the jersey he wrote with today. Yeah, he soldiered on, like, you know, he's a legend. Rigoberto Oran. Good to see you, mate. How are you? How are you, my friend? All is good, no? G'day, mate. How are you? Dylan Van Bauer, good to speak to you. Yeah, thanks. Talking with Simon Geshe here. Mate, you got to tell me about yesterday, because this was an amazing thing. You launched the attack. Next thing you know, Van Art comes past you like you weren't even doing anything and looks back like, how come you didn't take my wheel? What was that like? Yeah, it was a bit humiliating, actually. <laughs> Mads, how are you, mate? Ah, looking forward to Paris now. You're looking forward to Paris already. Mate, this race feels like it's only just getting going. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's crack one of these open and do a quick taster. Oh, that's lovely. This is a really good everyday, just slam it down, probably four or five, you know, in the afternoon before you really get serious. <laughs> four or five bottles or four or five o'clock? Both. <laughs> October 2011, New York, a case of 1961 Petrus. 1961 was the best year ever for Bordeaux wine. And it's also the best year ever for, you know, people burnt because I was born in 1961. <laughs> so it's, it's obviously a great vintage. A, a fine vintage. <laughs> my blue-eyed son Oh, who did you meet, my darling young one I met a young child beside a dead pony I met a white man who walked a black dog And it's a hard And it's a hard And it's a hard And it's a hard It's a hard Muir. Muir. Yeah. I think I've got it. I think I've cracked Muir. it. Well, we had a rotating cast at the tour, of course, didn't we? With Daniel on television duty and Lionel joining us for the middle week. So Kate Wagner came in for the first week. And then we had Mitch Docker in the final week and Francois Tomazo doing his fifth tour with us, I think it was. Fifth or sixth. Daniel's counting. Fifth Tour de France with us. Um, Great company as always, and uh, well, an enjoyable uh, three weeks. A lot of driving for me, um, but mm. Lionel, you came up out in the middle week to relieve me of some of the driving, which was much appreciated. Did you enjoy your mini break at the tour? A mini break, yeah, I did actually. I mean, it was well, with the the clouds were fairly low over my head at the time, and it was absolutely typical that after nine of the best. Uh, well, the best nine consecutive days of Tour de France racing that I could ever remember. It was sort of back to, you know, into a kind of fairly bog standard groove for my four day stint, wasn't it? A couple of sprint wins. I mean, Wout van Aert. Well, the, the clouds might have been low over you, but the, the, the clouds lifted for your arrival at the Tour because uh, we, had, we had nine great days racing, but also terrible weather throughout the, the Tour. Francois, who's covered 32, said it was the worst tour for weather he could ever remember following on from a rotten Giro as well mm. well when i Why when not? i got to valence the, the heavens were well and truly open weren't they it was pouring with rain when you picked me up outside the tgv station um i That's suppose right. i mean it was uh watching at home and having the sense of really missing out i mean it's the first episodes of the cycling podcast tour de france coverage i'd missed since the very first weekend back in 2013 when you two went to corsica and i went to the glastonbury festival so you know to see just what great racing it was 
um, day after day, great and surprising racing. Uh, I did have a real sense of missing out. Um, I mean, the the stage that went over Mont Ventoux, which Wout van Aert won, was absolutely fantastic. But in a funny way, I almost felt too close to it to really appreciate what was going on because I'd kind of got into a groove of watching on television and, and being spoiled by watching it every day from start to finish, which is not something that we get to do when we're actually covering r- the race for um, the podcast because we have to do all that driving, which we normally share... 50-50, don't we, Richard? And I think I, when I left the uh, you guys in Carcassonne, I said that um, what struck me was that when you're at home, you get a really good two-dimensional view of what's going on in the Tour de France. And when you're there, you get an incomplete but three-dimensional view of what's going on. And so there's a sort of richness to actually being there that you don't get at home through watching on television. But perhaps things that happen in the race, the actual incidents, um, pass you by a little bit when you're on the ground. Uh, Whereas on television, you can pause it, rewind it. I mean, I was like a, a lots of our listeners you know when um when incidents happened i was rewinding the television to see exactly what had gone on um and uh, so yeah it was a very different experience but an absolutely cracking um opening week i mean it, if that had been the dauphiné it would have been the greatest race of all time <laughs> if that had been the dauphiné <laughs> uh yeah i i remember um um being in malasen with you for the the finish of that uh, Van Art stage um, line. I remember it very, very hot, and you don't, as you say, see a, a sort of helis- helicopter view of the race. But what you do see is is all that is is much more vivid. And you know, it's so when we're talking about the Giro, and I remember even the Pots because I was studying him so closely every day in a way that you wouldn't have been doing, obviously, watching it on TV at the Tour. Um, you know, the 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 the. the the stories were van der Poel, obviously in that in that first week um and even stages and i think we'll return to this but even stages that promised very little delivered an awful lot um i think we gave credit at the time to christian prudhomme and 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 the course designer thierry gouvenou for coming up with the, the course that they came up with which which you know lent itself to great racing too in the last couple of days i've watched the de Koenig, uh, quick step video film or certainly the first part of their inside the team film of the race. And, you know, remembering that first day and Julian Alaphilippe, and we talked a bit about this in the last episode about how Alaphilippe can rise to an occasion like like no other riders. Um, and then Jumbo Visma, obviously, the, the the coping with the crashes and disappointment and then picking themselves up. Their, their film is called Plan B, which is nothing to do with the new coronavirus uh, regulations <laughs> in the UK. Uh, but everything to do with how they managed to improvise once Roglic had gone home with his injuries. Um, and Jonas Vingegaard was one of the, the revelations of the tour, wasn't he? Um, but Mark Cavendish, I mean, who saw that coming? Mark Cavendish is going to do it! Oh, he's done it! He's done it! That is unbelievable! In so many ways! Oh, it's getting brutal! Still Bawani in the frame as well, on the floor! Oh, photo! Bahani shakes his head and Mark Cavendish shakes two fists at the sky. He comes well for that. It's Cavendish though. It's Cavendish. Hard work, sacrifice, belief. And Cavendish makes it 33 with another chapter to the fairy tale. Mark Cavendish. It's coming off to the line. Is he going to get there? Oh, I think he has. I think he has done it. He has got there. The little guy is standing with giants. 
Anybody? Well, to go back to the tour of Turkey, where I was probably getting the odd pelter for uh, not giving credit to the victories. I mean, the fact that he won those... Well, at least you weren't getting them from Cavendish. Including, at least you weren't getting them from right, Cavendish from himself. some of the interested parties. Well, the thing is... <laughs> like some of us. The thing is, you judge... I mean, you have to judge the... Is that why he didn't, is that why he didn't come to the start of the tour? <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, I was really hoping he didn't win a stage until I got there because having seen all the previous uh, tour stage wins at first hand, uh, you know, uh, wanted to to see whether he could do it. I mean, but the difference is, you know, Mark Cavendish is a rider whose career and stature is such that wins in the Tour of Turkey, despite all of the difficulties and the illness and the troubles and, the, you know, the barren months and uh, the difficult seasons, you know, the Tour of Turkey is not the kind of the denouement to the Hollywood movie, is it? I mean, the but, Tour de France wins, but there was I mean, they in... were absolutely remarkable, all of them. I mean, that that's, that's the end of the story that Mark Cavendish deserved, really, the career he's had deserved. So, I mean, I stand by what I said during t the Tour of Turkey. Um, well... Um, I, I think I think that's an interesting position to take, Lionel. But he, with, with with hindsight, I mean, if you look at the riders he beat there, I mean, he was beating Jasper Philipson, who ended up being you know among the better sprinters of the Tour de France. And the, the main thing with those victories in the Tour of Turkey was the the leap that they represented from what Cavendish had been producing over the previous year. And but what we we didn't know, we we weren't privy to at the time, um, what was that all the well all the work that was going in behind the scenes and and which we've you know we've subsequently learned um in a recently published book um we've learned about um that that this was this was sort of brewing but everything you know the the planets really had to the stars really had to align you know there were moments there when it, it could have not happened there was a moment where he you know he had to get to Belgium I think to take part in scale the price at you know a, an hour or two's notice and he had to he was phoning up private helicopter companies and he managed to get a helicopter eventually and he he made it to Belgium and you know there were there were a series of things like this sliding doors moments that could have gone either way but I must say on the day of his first stage win in Fougere, I mean, I was open mouthed um for one of the you know one of the first times I could say that about um you know, stages I've seen live in the Tour de France. Um, it, it wasn't something that I necessarily saw coming. And, and that was a, it was a fantastic, another fantastic plot throughout the tour, really, because as you, you guys said, on the days which looked as though they might be routine and we weren't going to get this fantastic from the gun racing with Van der Poel and Van Aert, the protagonist, or Pogacar, um, on the sort of transition days or the, the, the humdrum sprint days we had this incredible human interest story and um you know and cavendish's own sort of sheepishness and, and nervousness around that and before that in the days leading up to that um made it all the more special um it, it was quite he surreal was prickly wasn't he? he was in that sort of prickly mood and in every respect it was like going back in time i mean how how rarely do we do this in sport do athletes turn back the clock like this and for an athlete as well whose speciality is that explosiveness of speed the power that that tends to diminish and we thought it had diminished with Cavendish and for him to produce these performances that weren't just good they were 
almost exact replicas of what and, he was and, doing at his peak. And, and his presence, his influence at the tour was such a big th- part of our lives and our jobs at the tour for so many years. And it had gone, it was long gone. It had ceased to be that f- um, oh, yeah. for, you know, since 2016. And, and as you say, Rich, it was literally like time travel for us as well to, you know, to go to the start in the morning, knowing that today could be a Cavendish day and to having to negotiate that sort of prickliness or that, um, you know, knowing, you know, particularly working for TV, you know, I had to speak to him every morning when he had a chance and you know even when you know he was actually in, on, in a great mood at the tour and gave great interviews but the, there's a, you're always slightly on edge interviewing him and um yeah he was and he was exactly the same in, in press conferences he was he was you know you you might have expected after that first win in Fougere somebody just with the weight of the world having been removed from their shoulders and feeling this great sense of relief and, and elation that's not how he came across at all. He was he was angry, not angry. He wanted to score points. He wanted to he he, he wanted to um, get his point across that you know he felt a lot of people had written him off and that he um, and even some podcasts. You know, he, I mean, come on, two, even two thirds. Yeah, no, I mean, even I mean, two thirds of some podcasts have written him off. Yeah, I'm definitely no, no. I'm definitely with Daniel here uh, on the tour of Turkey wins. I'm, I'm, I'm with Daniel now. <laughs> I've, I've, I've switched camps. I mean, it, so, it sounds to Lionel, me like you're, you're on your own. It sounds to me in, like you, you're, you're some kind of, uh, you've got some kind of agreement <laughs> to send him time codes of when we're talking about him uh, here. <laughs> but I mean, no, I think you judge the very best by the very best. And, um, you know, winning Tour de France stages deserved um, all of the praise and credit. And like you say, I mean, it was it was the greatest hits of Mark Cavendish. He'd won in Fougere before. He'd won in Chateau Roux before. Uh, the most, um, well, he'd won just down the road from Valence before. So he was on this incredible streak of, of um, you know, going back to... It was like sort of I don't know the the Beatles going to greatest hits tour yeah the Beatles going to Strawberry Fields or something or um, but uh, it didn't <laughs> didn't the straight stage to Nîmes was a strange one where they didn't chase and then I thought maybe the next day and the finishing Carcassonne wouldn't suit him as much obviously a much longer stage um, but that victory and to be right on the finish line I was right next to the finish line to see him and Morkoff come over the line one and two. It said everything really about Cavendish, about his career, about his relationship with his teammates, um, you know, mm. and, and the work that those teammates over the years, whether it be Morkoff now or, you know, the likes of, of Isor and Renshaw and, and so on in the past. Um, it was an absolutely extraordinary sports story. And as you say, you know, one one for the ages. Um, and in a funny way, the fact that he's ended the tour tied with Eddie Merckx on 34 stage wins, it didn't, the fairy tale didn't happen on the Champs-Élysées. And when I spoke to Patrick Lefebvre about it uh, a few days before the final stage, you know, he said if, if Cavendish wins on the Champs-Élysées, uh, breaks a record in the green jersey, you know, maybe that is the moment to close the door and, and say that's the career done. But uh, as we know, one more year and, you know, who knows? I mean, I certainly won't. I, I don't think I'd written him off, but I was just wasn't going overboard um, about the do you, think, the... do you think he'll go, do you think he'll go back to the Tour of Turkey? Line? I've, I've, I've got a suspicion he possibly won't. <laughs> Um, well, listen, just to end on Camdish before we move on to, um, to to other stories from the tour, but I mean, I talk about this in my Tour de France diary, which will be available for friends of the podcast. The next two weeks, we're releasing our 
audio diaries from the 2020 and 2021 Tours of France with entries by me, Lionel, Francois and Kate Wagner. Um, so that'll be available for friends of the podcast 2020 next week, 2021 the week after. But I do quote, I do talk a bit about my my difficult relationship with, with Mark Cavendish. And uh, he did come out in that first press conference in Fougere with a couple of absolutely belting quotes. He said, half that press room hasn't written a good story for longer than I haven't won a bike race, but they're still here at the tour, which was absolutely fantastic and true. And he also said, this race has given me the life I have, and I have given it the life I have, which is also a great quote. You know, he does give give good quotes. So, um, yeah, Cavendish was back, wasn't he? But it, as we moved beyond those first nine stages, um, it became the Pogacar story. And really, you know, that eighth and ninth stage um, confirmed what we suspected that with Roglic having gone, with Bernal not there, it was going to be Pogacar's to lose. Yeah. And those two days in the Alps, those two rainy days in the Alps, he, he really, he won the tour. I, I mean, he? I think we should also say, one of you guys, I think it was you, Lionel, said that, or you, Rich, said it was a fantastic, Thierry Gouvenon and Christian Prudhomme had designed a fantastic route. Well, um, they'd also designed a, a danger strewn, a hazard strewn route. Starting to get a little bit narrow. Oh, oh crash, crash behind, crash behind Jumbo Visma. And I think that has been a mass crash. Leaders down, down riders everywhere. And this is chaos. This is exactly what we didn't want on the opening day of the Tour de France. An absolute disaster. Part of what made the racing exciting, drama filled, also sort of um, diluted it. Um, because we'd lost Roglic, we'd lost, we'd almost lost Geraint Thomas, and there were there were various other sort of walking wounded. I mean, it, it, Jack Hague, it, yeah, Jack Hague, Ineos were absolutely ravaged on uh, on that first stage, which really set the tone to a, to a certain extent. You know, they they'd come in. We'd been talking about four potential leaders for them. We'd been talking about Richie Port, Theo Gegenhardt. Geraint Thomas and Richard Carapaz well they were left after that day really with well Carapaz and Thomas hadn't lost much time after the stage one but Theo Gegenhardt had lost five minutes and poor over over two minutes so the 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 sort of field of potential pretenders contenders um had had already been well had already thinned down quite considerably before we got to the foot of the Alps hadn't it yeah, I mean, on Pogacar, I was thinking when you were talking about the Giro, Richard, and Bernal, I was thinking that he was comfortable, but he didn't really need to do any more in order to win the race. And Pogacar really had the Tour de France sewn up. Um, the time trial was the first uh, real blow because it put him ahead of anyone that might be a contender by you know quite considerable margins, despite the fact the time trial wasn't particularly long. Then there was w- was a- that more shocking than what he then did in the Alps. I think it was really because that wasn't what was expected. I don't think, and and that's where I think we we really uh, felt the 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 absence of uh, Roglic, wasn't it? Because you know the the picture might have been very different, um, but for Roglic's crashes, um, so Pogacar was already, as your uh, phrase goes, leader in the clubhouse, really. And even though the seventh stage to La Cruzo really sort of shuffled things up in the air a bit it was the stage to Le Grand Bonhomme which was extraordinary all the more so really because there was the breakaway up the road and uh, Pogacar just basically rode through people didn't he and by the end of that stage 
Were we thinking Wout van Aert's a serious contender to win the Tour de France? Probably not. So you look back at Lutsenko at 4.38, Rigoberto Urán at 4.46. I mean, really, at that moment, the, the Tour de France was kind of done, wasn't it? The, the gaps were There's huge. an interesting... I mentioned the Jumbo Visma Plan B film. There's an interesting moment in there where <clears throat> Wout van Aert, well after... Because that day going... Uh, uh, into the state, stage eight on Saturday. That that day, Wout van Aert thought, you know, had a really good chance of taking the yellow jersey. Uh, and by the end of the day, that that chance had gone. Pogacar had <clears throat> just blown up the race. Um, but in the third week, by which time van Aert was well out of contention, um, Pogacar kept chasing him down on one of the, the mountain stages. I can't remember which one. And, Pog- and van Aert said to him, why... Why are you chasing me down? Um, I'm not any kind of threat. He says, "Well, I, I never know with you. I never know what your tactics are." <laughs> um, so uh, that was he, he still kind of considered Van Aert a potential uh, threat, even though he was well out of it. Which is an interesting little insight. But um, yeah, those those two days. I mean, that that stage Sunday stage to Tina was remarkable. Uh, the weather, remember, was biblical um a bit like the last time we were in Tina actually and Ben O'Connor uh won the stage at one point it was a virtual yellow jersey and it was a strange day where he was five minutes up and the, the gaps were enormous and uh, he was away with Igita and um uh, Quintana at one point who looked better and then they both kind of cracked in the cold and O'Connor who was keeping a, an audio diary for us at the cycling podcast uh Took a very, very memorable win for AG2R uh, and, uh, well, ended up, I think, fourth overall on GC, didn't he, at the at the Tour? Also very memorable that day, chaps, before I forget, was, well, standing at the finish line for, well, I think it was well over an hour after O'Connor had crossed the line, waiting for the riders who, by then, we knew were not going to make the time limit. Um, foremost among them, Nick Lamini, the Quebecer next hash rider, who had been one of the great human interest stories of the first week. And he came in last in the end, didn't he? And he knew that he was going to um, finish outside the time limit, but he sort of stubbornly refused to give in. And, um, you know, he sort of collapsed over his handlebars as he did come over the line, knowing that his Tour de France was over. And it was a tough day for Mark Cavendish as well. He only just made it inside the, the time limit with his decurrent quick step teammates. Tim DeClerc gave us a very nice entry for his audio diary on that day. And the following day, I went for a ride up uh, the, the climb to Tina and was passed um, uh, by the decurrent quick step team, moving at an incredible, unbelievable speed. Um, because I, as I later learned, they were on electric specialized bikes. Yeah. Uh, so that was quite humiliating at the time. Um, but anyway, Pogacar, um, obviously a, a very, very convincing winner. Didn't show any signs of weakness at any point. I mean, Vingegaard, um dropped him briefly on Mont Ventoux the second time up there, and everybody got very excited at that. But when we went into the Pyrenees, Pogacar was cannibal-esque um, in taking more stage wins and, you know, in the final time trial, didn't really have to do too much um to uh to wrap it up we've we've spoken a bit about pagachar um recently and you know what he's still so young he's signed this long term contract with his team we we were talking about you know potential threats you know could it be another rider could it be 
boredom? Could it be, um, you know, becoming extremely wealthy and, and having distractions to deal with? Um, I asked uh, Joe Dombrowski about this. He was a teammate of his the last couple of years at UAE Team Emirates. Um, so I thought I'd get his uh, point of view on uh, the man behind the rider, Tadej Pogacar. You're moving on from UAE. I mean, you had a couple of years there with uh, Pogacar. Did you race much with Pogacar? Did you get to know him much? Um, we did a few races together, I suppose in 2020 more. To be honest, I have probably more time around him outside of the race because he lives there in Monaco. So if we, you know, whether riding together or bumping into each other, doing whatever, uh, that's probably the time that I've seen him the most. And what, what do you make of him? I mean, what, what, you know, on the one hand, he's this once in a generation champion. Um, on the other hand, he seems this very down to earth guy. Is that, is that you know, what you see is what you get with him? Is that y- your impression of him as well? Pretty much. I think what strikes me is like how calm he is. Uh, there's a lot of stress and pressure for anybody kind of riding at the world tour level, but particularly in that position, it's like you kind of have the weight of a team on you, but he seems to handle that really well. And it's like, you almost feel that there's not really any difference whether he kind of has like a whole team built around him and one of the best teams built around him, or if he was just riding on a junior team, having fun, like, I don't feel that he really feels that Mm. weight which I think actually is going to be really probably pretty beneficial to him in the long run um, because he's still, I don't know, what is he, 23? You know, that's that's really young and a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of expectation at that age, you know? Mm. Uh, what are, the th- are there any threats to him, do you think? I mean, he's, um, it seems to come easily to him you know not just grand tours but but the the classics he's won as well i mean what what are the threats what one suggestion we had was well you know um he's still so young he's he's gonna make a lot of money he's gonna wake up with all this money in his bank account is the hunger gonna still be there in in five years um is that the most is that a more likely threat than somebody else emerging do you think it's his own ability to stay motivated and 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 keep that same attitude over you know what could be quite a long career I mean, it's hard to say, like, I don't think he's a flashy guy. He strikes me as like really mature and level headed for someone 23 years old. You know, it's always kind of down to the individual and what they're motivated by. Um, But my impression is that he kind of just loves doing what he's doing. So I don't know that that motivation is hard to come by. And I think he's got a pretty good head on his shoulders. So I don't think he's necessarily the type of guy that you know, especially living in Monaco, there's a lot of like glitz and glam and it could be an easy place where you get caught up in that, but I don't really see, I don't really see that for him. And as far as someone else, it's like, you just never know because, you know, now he's so dominant and you see him that he can win a wide variety of races. It's not that he can only win the tour. It's like he won Liège, he won uh, Lombardia won the tour. Um, so he's a really complete rider, but it's like, was anyone expecting him to be that guy four years ago? I don't know. And he's a standout in that he's like so young and so, so good kind of like a Remco, 
but probably there's an element of like punting a bit on you know young guys like that and like how it's going to go is really somewhat unpredictable um and obviously also anything can change so quickly you know like you see unexpected crashes or injuries or whatever um that can totally derail i mean you know look at like what Froome has had to come back from but i think he i think he has a really good head on his shoulders to kind of handle that sort of level of pressure because it doesn't seem that he really feels it have you have you seen him since the his second tour win or race with him yeah. since then yeah um, yeah i don't think we've raced together but you've but, seen him mm-hmm. and he's kind of just the same doesn't carry himself differently didn't turn it didn't turn up in a porsche or anything like that well he does have a nice uh gt3 rs in monaco but i mean you have to play a little bit right <laughs> <laughs> you, gotta, uh, you gotta fit in yeah but it's, it's like the type of thing like for example like we might be riding down the coast road there between nice and monaco and like my wife and i might ride together on an easy day and if he saw us he would turn around and ride with us even though like we're kind of just noodling along so there's a lot of like humility with that i mean the thing about pogatra is that he has won back-to-back tours and he is still only 23 years old and you know that must uh, frighten his older rivals and give younger riders um you know a, a, an unrealistic benchmark against which to measure their own progress but uh, another one of his contemporaries really Pavel Sivakov of Ineos Grenadiers uh, we spoke to him to ask how, what his impressions of Pogacar the rider are for, to, be, to, to be honest for, for myself like I wasn't at the tour this year and last year at the tour I wasn't myself so I didn't really realize like uh, I couldn't feel personally like how good he was but I raced with him like at the end of the season and yeah like let's say Lombardy to, to be honest, I didn't think he was like steppable from everyone. Yeah, I even had the feeling, yeah, he's beatable, like match. Yeah, arrived in his group at the Europeans and then Lombardi, obviously, he won. But, but yeah, obviously, I, I watched the tour and to, there he was uh, kind of, he seemed uh, unbeatable, like, uh, yeah, infallible, I would say. Yeah, always super calm and yeah, always there to, to respond to any attack. And actually, yeah, he was just attacking himself. So, yeah, on the, on the last two years in the Tour de France, it looked like he was all he was a step above uh, of what he is in the same the other races. It's like he's always stepping up for the Tour. I hope you know he's gonna maybe like have a have a bad day or something in in the future. It would be good for us, I guess. Because uh, yeah, but when we look at what what he does on the tour, well, it's, it's just impressive to see. I mean, how much of the tour did you see, and and what did you think of his performance? Because, um, I mean, he looked like he was on it really right from the start. There was never really a moment where he he looked in particular danger, really. Yeah, exactly. I think from the start he took already some time. Um, I think he's attacking uh, Le Grand Bonnard stage uh, with the uh, Col de Rome and uh, Colombia when he went uh, he went off there from a long way. I think that was uh, a real hit for everyone else mentally as well. You know, when yeah, a big favorite like him just attacks and goes away, takes a lot of time, like mentally just uh, I think he impacted a bit everyone. I think with Broglic in the race would have been different. Um 
I think honestly he he he's beautiful. He was amazing and he raced really smart. Uh, but yeah, I don't see like he's maybe like yeah, just uh, just unbeatable. Of course, it's really hard to beat him. Like and and Boglish as well. They are like just physically maybe just to be stronger than everyone else. But I think tactically they, they, they are they are beatable definitely. Thinking about that stage to Le Grand Bonnard, obviously he wasn't in the front of the race. You know, he was attacking from, um, you know, behind and there was a lot of uh, other riders up ahead. Tactically, what's that like? Because he, he always had someone to chase. You know, there was always um, something, you know, overtaking riders must be good for morale, I guess. But but also, is is it a case that, you know, it's a, a different phenomenon attacking the favorites but not when it's right at the front of the race because the the stage win he wasn't going for the stage win there wasn't quite the same incentive for other riders to um to to react which doesn't help the other gc riders it puts all of the onus on them to to react i mean tactically is was that quite an interesting move because it wasn't from the front of the race yeah definitely 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 that's a good point but on the other hand as well I think for them it doesn't matter for the guys who are going for the GC. It doesn't matter if there is someone there or not. Uh, they're just thinking about not gaining or not losing time. So I think he just went, of course, uh, maybe like it would be like, let's say, less defensive race because there is not uh, the stage winning in contention. But I think for him it didn't matter really. I think he would have done the same even if it was a, a stage to grab. But yeah, definitely, definitely. That's that's true. Like when you you got a lot of guys in front, you always like maybe like a wheel to sit on. You have someone, someone to see. But when you're going for a stage, when you also have a big motivation. So I think for him, it didn't matter really. There, he just went full and just attacked from far away. And yeah, it's just like that. Uh, let's say like the Grinta, how uh, you you call it. Yeah, he's really good. You know, he's just not. Um, he, he like he's attacking and yeah I think he's exciting as well for the fans to see like big big guys attacking from far away. I mean, what's he like in the bunch? Is he is he a friendly guy? Is he a a, a chatty guy? Yeah, he uh, he's a uh, he's really really good guy, really friendly. Uh, yeah, he's not like the guy who will fight like crazy. No, really. Really nice guy, really relaxed, really calm, uh, and I think also that's his trend. Actually, he's never he seems seems like he's never really in stress, like he's never really worried. He's uh, always there, pretty pretty calm. Yeah, I think he that's one of his trends, uh, being yeah, that's being calm like this. He said on Geraint Thomas's podcast. I mean, hard to believe there's another podcast, really. But he said that he um, perhaps struggles a little bit when the altitude is very high, and we we have seen that a little bit. Um, we we saw it last year, and uh, perhaps we saw a little bit on Mont Ventoux when when he didn't react, couldn't react um, at the key moment. I mean, first of all, as a climber, explain what that's like when it gets very high. You know why. Um, why is it more difficult? And do you do you think that there's an element of of uh, why well, is he telling the truth basically about that? I guess I guess he's probably telling the truth. Uh, I don't see why he would lie about this. Uh, so yeah, when when you go higher, it's basically like yeah, it's physiologically you're just uh, lacking 
like bit of oxygen you you've got less uh yeah less oxygen as you're going higher so um it's hard to explain what you feel but it's just like yeah it's getting a bit harder it's kind of a slow burn you're just going higher and higher and it feels like yeah you're just losing losing a bit of that that higher power uh that's uh yeah that punch maybe but he's just so good that maybe he might be a little bit less better than what he is at sea level, uh, but he's still amongst the best. So I hope I hope it's the truth, to be honest. And um, yeah, we will see. I think uh, next year. I mean, he's the the team is strengthening as well, isn't it? Just subtly adding sort of climbing domestiques and 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 just building a team around him to support. I mean, you you'll know what it's like to be in a team of you know multiple strong climbers. Um, I mean, how how do you think that the rival teams can go about trying to beat him? Because as we see so often. If you, you can have a really, really strong team, but if you're up against the best rider, it can still be really, really hard to 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 shake that rider off. So, I mean, how can teams kind of gang up on him? I guess. Oh, I, I think it's um, it's really on that uh, earlier part of the race. Uh, let's say in nineteen, he lost some time in the crosswinds. So, uh, I think that's that's going to be uh, that's going to be a challenge for for him next next year is going to be a really really hectic start like in Denmark with crosswinds and then into the cobbles uh, we don't know yet how he's on the cobbles it's not so much about the, the the physical abilities there okay of course it is but it's not like in a climb where let's say he's the strongest he, you're, not go, you're never going to drop him uh, but here on the flat tactically you, you can do a big damage uh, and you can gain quite a lot of time which, which is going to be like crucial at the end of the race so I don't think let's say like um, making a big train in the mountains with the best climbers is going to work because obviously like if he's strong he's not going to get dropped and he's going to be able to react but um, yeah I think this more tactical first classic week is going to be in favor for yeah, a more open race, I guess. I suppose everyone is really eager to see uh, Bernal back to his best and, and see Bernal go up against um, Pogacar. But Daniel made the point that maybe a rider like Carapaz might be more of a um, a threat to um, to Pogacar, perhaps, just because of the, the style of rider that he is. It's not quite as, uh, you know, like two similar riders going up against one another. It's quite a different style. Maybe that's the way to... Um, beat Pogacar rather than going head to head with the similar style of rider and um, try uh, you know a bit of variety maybe I don't know I, I think they are different uh, I think Egan and uh, and Tade are quite different style of riders um, Tade is probably better in, in TTs but uh, I would say Egan is also like he likes to attack from far away and let's say he he's never scared of the cobbles or the crosswinds so I think I think, yeah, him and Carapaz, they're not like similar, but they have some similarities, I think, uh, for that. But I think they are both uh, good options to try and beat and beat uh, Pogachar. I mean, last year, Carapaz was there, and I think he was on, on a good level. I think uh, Egan also has, has a lot of cars to play. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, really interesting to see the tactics. And you also have to take into account the taxes of Yumbo. I think Roglic is also one of the big favorites there, and uh, they also have a really strong team. 
uh, for next season. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see. I also spoke to Jonathan Vorters, the manager of EF Education Nippo recently, and this is his thoughts on Tadej Pogacar and also his most likely rivals over the next year or two. Absolutely remarkable. Here it is, Pogacar sailing by uh, Jon Izagiri. Michael Woods will be next. Uh, Fans encroaching here. They know greatness as well. It's terrific to have that level of enthusiasm, and it looks like a slow bicycle race for everybody except for Tadej Pogacar, Dan. Yeah, he's just caught and sailed past Mike Woods. Yeah, I mean, it's field. the first mountain stage of the Tour de France. What was that stage eight or stage nine? Pogachar? I mean, that's a, a, a performance that I don't think I've ever seen in my time in, in professional cycling. It, it stands out just by the sheer dominance of that performance. That day, he just stomped everyone <laughs> by a huge margin. Um, I just I have not I have not seen that uh, in 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 ever. Can he be beaten? I mean, that's the next the next big challenge for everybody else, isn't it? I mean, two years ago, perhaps we thought, well, Egan Bernal is going to be the man to beat in multiple successive years at the Tour de France. I think Bernal is the only guy that could beat Pogacar. Um, I don't I don't see Roglic ever hitting that level. There's always something that doesn't quite grow right with Ro. I mean, he can do it in the Vuelta. You know, Roglic is sort of, I, I remember it was Lamond or Bernard, you know, way back in the day. And they would, they were talking about like Phil Anderson and Sean Kelly. And, and they would say, these guys, they can do it in the Giro and they can do it in the tour to Swiss and they can do it in the Vuelta, but they can't do it in the tour de France. And to me, that's a little bit Roglic is, is, is that guy, you know, like he'll always be good, but I don't think he'll ever pose a, a serious, serious threat to, to Pogacar. Bernal is the one guy that could, but you know, I don't know. Pogacar is something special. I mean, I, I remember it watching Liège Buffon Liège this year and you know, the last 10 K right. And they're coming down to that sprint. Um, and most people, most of your pundits are saying, you know, Ada Filippo win the sprint. He's the fastest guy there. And yada 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 right and i remember thinking in the back of my head and i, and I was going to put it out on twitter but you know whenever you put these things out on twitter you get so many people that throw rotten banana peels and tomatoes at you so i i was like yeah but i remember thinking no pogachar is going to win aleph leaves the better sprinter but pogachar is a champion of his generation and the champion of his generation will figure out a way to win it's like bernard you know winning on the Roubaix velodrome, you know, shouldn't have ever happened, but it did because he was the champion of his generation. And that's kind of the feeling Pogachar has to me. I mean, there are a lot of things that can derail that, you know, immense success. So very young. I mean, you know, one day he's going to wake up and be like, gosh, you know, I have $20 million in the bank account. I don't really want to go ride in the rain today. And, you know, and maybe when that day comes, then Pogachar is not going to win any races anymore. But the, the feeling to me that he has right now is that he is the, the, the champion of his generation. So do you think we're looking maybe not necessarily at the, the, the riders that we think of as the, the kind of current contenders? Maybe maybe somebody like Vingegaard, um, a better bet for Jumbo Visma. I mean, the, there's always a Remco question. He, he's also a fair bet. I mean, I, I would back him before I would back Roglic in, in, in beating Pogachar. Um, Bernal, you know, I like Bernal a lot. If whether, you know, is, is Bernal ambitious enough to really take that on? I don't, I don't, hard to say, but yeah, I, I like, 
those two, you know, quite a bit. I don't think Evenepoel will ever reach that level. I think Evenepoel will will be a, a great rider for a lot of races, but not um, not at the level of Pogachar in 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 that sense. So Vingegaard um, um, seems like that. I mean, that's there, there's something special there for sure too. Um, whether or not that's sort of like a champion of generations or not, hard to say. But there's there's definitely something special under underneath the hood there well i don't know what you guys think there but uh, do you think maybe roglic's time is in danger of passing somewhat and perhaps jumbo visma's best hopes lie with jonas vingegaard next year i don't necessarily agree with that at the moment i think roglic has got at least one or two um good years left i mean Primoz Roglic has been riding bikes for less time than Tadej Pogacar. And if you speak to people who know him well, his manager and, and coaches, you know, they talk about how he's, he is still learning. Mark Cavendish tells a great story, actually, um, in his latest book um, about a couple of years ago, the UAE tour. Um, and when Cavendish gave this as an example of why Roglic is so endearing and, and so popular in the peloton. There were a couple of years ago, the UAE tour, there was a day when um, a team was pulling and he, Roglic couldn't understand why. And he, he rode up alongside Cavendish and, and he said, um, why, why do you think they're pulling? And Cav- come on, come on, Daniel. We need, we need, we need the Roglic impression <laughs> no, at this point. Oh, why do you think they're pulling? Huh? And um, and he, it was out of Cavendish explained this was out of genuine curiosity. He wasn't being pithy or um, you know sarcastic. He, he genuinely didn't understand. He said to Cavendish, uh, "I'm new to this. I don't really understand certain things that I see in races. Maybe you do. Maybe you can enlighten me." And you know, maybe that speaks to the fact that Roglic you know it is still improving can still improve further i also you know i've said this in the podcast before over the last few weeks when we've thought about the 2022 tour de france vingegaard i i fear for the amount of pressure that he's going to come under in denmark i mean when i when i see when i'm around the danish media and and see how they operate and that's not to say that they're you know more invasive than any other media but they they there are a lot of them and cycling occupies a place in the danish sporting landscape that is not matched in many other places if anywhere even in belgium or the netherlands or somewhere like that and he's going to come under a massive massive amount of pressure which isn't necessarily going to be a problem, but I saw signs towards the end of the Tour de France that he was finding it a bit asphyxiating and and he wasn't relishing it. And I, you know, Rich, you talked about Remco and his body language and his sort of nervous energy um, in the in the mix zone. And, you know, th- these are clues sometimes. And we see it with Pogacar. Pogacar, you know, anyone anyone thinking that Pogacar is going to have some kind of breakdown and that it's all going to become too much for him only needs to witness him in the mix zone. And okay, he's not the most, you know, expansive interviewee, but my God, is he relaxed when he sort of parades through the mix zone and he's becoming more relaxed, which is which is ominous. And, and I don't see that in Vingegaard and I'm going to be really interested to observe him this year, knowing that, you know, both before the Tour de France and when we get to Copenhagen. And I think, I think the adrenaline of those first few days in Denmark for him will be hugely draining. And, and uh, uh, you know, even if he copes with the pressure well, um, he'll be excited and, and, and there'll be a, a massive adrenaline spike for him those first few days. And, and that might just 
might just make make the, the later part of the race more difficult. Maybe they need to have a grand depart in, in Slovenia um, it, it, for Pogacar to um, cope with a similar kind of obstacle. Uh, Lionel, you were going to talk about uh, a stage, weren't you? I was. Just before that, I was going to just mention Wout van Aert because, you know, he is one mm. of the Galacticos and his tour was extraordinary, wasn't it? He won the double ascent of Mont Ventoux. He won the time trial at Saint-Emilion and he won the sprint on the Champs-Élysées. And, you know, we talk about versatility and really versatility doesn't do van Aert justice, does it? I mean, he is at the Merck's Eno end of the versatility spectrum, whereas Peter Sagan perhaps more towards the, you know, not even the Sean Kelly end of the... Uh, versatility spectrum. I mean, a truly extraordinary world-class all-rounder uh, and not all-rounder in the sense of kind of, you know, pretty good at most things and world-class at pretty much all aspects of, of cycling. So, uh, and the other rider really who caught the eye was Mate Mohoric, who won a stage that really I thought was absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, it was stage seven from Vierzon to Le Cruzo, 249.1 kilometers. On paper, this was the day I had set aside to do something with my family. I'd watched every minute of the previous six stages and I thought, well, this is the stage where they're going to let Johan Afredo up the road all on his even own. Though he's even, retired. Though he's, even though he's retired <laughs> and he's sitting in the French TV studio, <laughs> they're going to give him a day back on the bike and he can just ride five minutes ahead of the peloton for five hours and then there'll be some kind of sprint. I could not have been more wrong. It was an absolutely, uh, as I say, jaw-dropping stage across, uh, you know, what I thought in the end was actually some quite beautiful French countryside, not particularly, you know, set piece and dramatic countryside, but attractive nonetheless. And I was absolutely gripped uh, on the edge of my sofa all afternoon and I had to cancel my plans with my family, which didn't go down too well because uh, when the suggestion was put to me that perhaps Saturday or Sunday I might be able to do something, I was like, well, no, that's that's the Alps. I'll be watching the tour. But anyway, that was uh, a stage for the ages and it was uh, enlivened, again, damning with faint praise there, by a breakaway which featured pretty much everyone who was everyone in the Tour de France. And Tom Scoins, the Latvian rider with Trek Segafredo, was in it. And I spoke to him about that particular stage seven. first week so far. The riders are being treated to the longest stage of the tour in 21 years today. Lucky souls. Well, just uh, uh, going through what is a spectacular breakaway for those of you who have been away. They've got half a minute at the moment and the sort of firepower that we're seeing on display here is absolutely outstanding. That day was kind of crazy. It was for sure very fast in the beginning and uh, I could not believe how big of a break we were in. Uh, we had Mohoric, who ended up winning the day, if I remember correctly. Uh, Jasper, me, Vincenzo also actually was. So we had three guys from our team. The yellow jersey was there, Matthew Vanderpool that, at that point. Uh, Boat Bernard, who was trying to get that yellow jersey, was there. Asgreen was there, who obviously has proven himself as a great one-day racer, who was actually also trying to go for the uh, jersey. Cavendish, I think, was there as well. So it was uh, yeah, quite a quite a stacked breakaway for sure. Once the breakaway had uh, established itself and we had a big enough gap to actually look around instead of just trying to follow wheels, uh, it definitely was a moment where I was like, oh damn, this breakaway is quite stacked. And these riders are 
real good. Um, but at the same time, it's like a moment in the race that, that it happens and then you kind of like forget about it and just try and figure out a way to beat them. They're climbing at a snail's pace. But no wonder, the gradient is horrendous. Certainly a different type of riding to the one we've seen in the last few days. But this is why we love this race. It gives us everything all at once. Today has been such a special day. And we're ready for the fantastic, frantic finale. This squeeze just losing the wheel at the back. The final was super hard. And unfortunately, Jasper came again so close to winning a stage. And uh, I was happy to be there to help him out. But he really went long, went all in. And it was just a pity he didn't uh, come on top on that day. Matej Mohoric makes Bahrain victorious. And take a look at that. One of the images of the season. I think everyone that day had a, quite an interesting story just because it wasn't only the race up front in the breakaway, but also in the back that people were racing. And like even the GC guys were trying to uh, test each other out. And it was definitely one of the harder days of the tour. And uh, so, yeah, the dinner table, it was like, boys comparing cars where they're like oh i did uh, this and this my heart rate was here and here actually don't remember exactly what the following day was but for me personally that sunday yeah i think ben o'connor won on top of team was probably the closest i've ever been to not making the time cut i don't know if it was efforts from that day or just underfueling or what, but uh, that day was most definitely the day where I was like, well, shit, I might be going home. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to our longtime sponsor, Science and Sport. We're very grateful to them for their support. And if you would like 25% off all your Science and Sport products, I'm sure a few of them got you through your run at the weekend. Daniel, um, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25. I know that because you asked me for the code a couple of weeks ago, ridiculously. Um, I should say that, um, a big thanks to those of you that do use the Science of Sport code because by using it, you are helping us indirectly. Um, so we're grateful to you for using the code and buying your Science of Sport products. Um, and, you know, Science of Sport... I, I might go into business. Yeah. I might go into business. I might I might become a rival of Science of Sport. I think I discovered something in, on my ultramarathon <laughs> that might, you know, put, put all other sports nutrition companies well, out of business. You can share it with them, Daniel, in the, in the, in the spirit of sharing. I mean... We're, it's, a very we're, rare, it's a rare vegetable. You know, we were, I, was talking, I was talking earlier on earlier on about the uh, Friends of the Podcast episodes coming up. Stephen Moon, the chief executive at Science of Sport, is actually a friend of the podcast as well, isn't he? A fully paid up friend of the podcast. No freebies on the second podcast apart from Daniel Freebie. Um, that's it. If you'd like to become a friend of the podcast, you can go to thecyclingpodcast.com. I want to mention a couple of other things. We had an email uh, from Michael Humphreys telling us that the tour of the cornfields, uh, which was graced by Lionel Burney several years ago, we talked about this in our gravel episode of the Explorer series recently. Tour of the cornfields is still going. He's he's uh, organising it. So early uh, early discussions about me potentially going back next year. 
and doing it again. Writing it I, again. I enjoyed You'd it be so like, much. It's like Mark Cavendish, Cavendish turning back time. <laughs> just, just the same. Um, a, a shout out too for Tom Randall's Christmas quiz on in our Facebook uh, discussion group. You can become a member of that by answering a few quite difficult questions. And talking of difficult questions, Tom Randall's Christmas quiz is extraordinarily good and difficult. I got eight out of 20. I got the question about the three of us wrong. Um, but it was great fun and well done, Tom, for putting that together. I also want to mention uh, Robert Marchand, who, Marchand, I think Marchand, if it's a French name, uh, tweeted us uh, with the news that one of the latest intake of astronauts is a, a, a track, a female track rider, um, Christine Birch. So he was suggesting she might be a rival for Pavel Sivakov. She might get to the moon first. <laughs> that was good. Um, anyway, let's take ourselves back to Spain. Hey, amigo, you know you have a face beautiful enough to be worth $2,000. Oh my God, I thought you were happily married. Well, Daniel, thank goodness for They're that. They're off. The I, was very, I was very tense there. I was very nervous. I thought I get very nervous before Grand Tour start. Well, not as nervous as poor old Pelayo Sanchez Mayo, who's been sitting up there in the doorway of the cathedral here in Burgos, waiting. Where are we, Daniel? <laughs> We're in Sad Hill Center, built in 1966 for the film The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, starring Clint Eastwood. I'm feeling good, but... It's just the first week. We have to start with, uh, with the start, with the beginning. It's super hard. Uh, I think we'll be a big battle, so... Thanks, Richard. That was stage two, which started south of the city of Burgos and looped 166. Not so much an epic tale of the Etapa today, more a short story of the Etapa. Stage four, 163. What are you going to do with that jersey? What, what will you do with it? I will not, uh, I don't know, maybe I will wash it, maybe I'm not going to wash it, and I will put it in a frame, put it in somewhere. What? I will say to my son, ah, you see, it was no joke, I was a real, uh, I was a cyclist, huh? <laughs> He's a really strange guy, you mean on the bike, or is he a bit strange off it as well? With a name like Odd, I don't know. Yeah, I mean performance. Uh, Maybe it's on the head and, uh, um, yeah, uh, I've already booked a, a flight for my legs from Japan to here. I don't know if they make it in time. Uh, I don't know what happened. We'll be interesting to see how the relationship between Enric and, uh, uh, Superman goes during the race. Uh, sounds a bit loaded. <laughs> um, uh, I'm sure Is Mass a bigger worry than Bernal now, Primoz? At the, at the moment, seems like, huh? Uh, I, I don't know. I did, I did. Have you watched the Movistar documentary on Netflix? Not really, uh, if I'm honest. It's good, you should watch it. It's very entertaining. Thank you. I, I, yeah, then I will check it. I think I saw the, the first one, but yeah, the second one, I, uh, I didn't uh, check it yet. The second one's even better. are a bit dirty. Um, I also heard something that 25% of the olive trees in the world are in this area. 20. I've heard that as well. 20. Is that true? 20. 20%, okay. Well, you've been claimed by Scotland, uh, but we better clear this up. How long exactly did you live in Scotland? I spent three periods of, I think, about four months there. A bit on and off, but yeah, I was there for a good period of time. 
uh, yeah, it's racing. Uh. Sometimes you you win something, sometimes you lose something, and yeah, today uh, we gain something. Yeah, with some action, uh. <laughs> uh, and yeah, uh, no risk, uh, no glory, and uh, yeah, was uh, was good. Nothing again, uh. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know nothing. I don't know the climbs uh, here. So uh, yeah, everything is new and. Uh, yeah, hopefully I will have legs huh? that uh, I can I can come on the top. Pretty much, we all have devices and things now that tell us how we recovered, how we slept. Do you look at them? Do you believe them? And um, how did you sleep? And how do you think you've recovered? I don't have it, huh? so uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I was fine, huh? You know what I mean? It's all good. Very shortly after that, with 61 kilometers still to go, Egan Bernal attacked and Primoz Roglic reacted. First he marked the Colombian, but once it was clear that the gap had opened up a bit, and there was reaction. Uh, all sorts of things become more complicated in the rain, from feeding to you know getting the right clothing and so forth. Oh, Here they come! And, and it looks Bernal's like Bernal. attacked with Rog! Oh my word! Well, we haven't been able to see footage, so we don't know what's happened here. We'll find that out from Lionel's later, but for now... From that point on, Eichin was losing more time, and the gap between the Roglic-Bernal Express and the rest kept growing, and it reached a two-minute mark before Bahrain-Victoria started to chase. Well, Richard stopped in another bar, second bar of the day, hoping to happen upon some, well, some Spanish fans, but what we found, we found Slovenians. Um, two Slovenians, Nirja and Sada decked out in Slovenian national colours. We've got the green and the blue. And you girls, I guess, are Primoz Roglic fans. Yes, and also Radnik, Polite and Matthew. Well, I got a call from Movistar, and uh, they say that Superman is willing to, to speak to me to explain what happened. The situation, o sea, the principio, the kilometer zero, or the point zero, this problem all started with the race situation yesterday, where three riders who were behind put the speaker on, on my phone and put it next to the microphone, and, and I ask basically the same question five times in different ways. Is he still Superman, or has he become, I don't know, what would, normal man? No, let's say he's a normal man right now because uh, the Kryptonite was his temper yesterday. Yeah, this way that Primoz Roglic has, and we sort of joke about it and we're flipping about it, but this, what I call roglification, you know, the, the clinical way in which he can yeah, hunt It was down almost uh, the perfect the ending, wasn't it? The way he hunted yeah, he down Henrik Maas in the time trial and, and, and just appeared on his shoulder on the perfect ending to a Vuelta that, where he's, you know, a very, very deserving. You know, I was looking at their respective... Oh. Rog is now dressed in tra traditional garb. Um, he's got, Rich, I'm going to let you describe that. He's, well, he's got a stick, a walking stick, which is another of these items, that, part of the paraphernalia associated with the Camino de Santiago. He's holding up a, a furry, soft toy scallop. Sweet worries, huh? but, uh, yeah. So many memories uh, there, Daniel. We had our, I mean, what felt like an eternity in Burgos at, at the start of the Vuelta. I think we had four nights there. Um, all the stages kind of happened in and around Burgos then who could forget Sad Hill Cemetery a very memorable trip there and the, the stage to Lagos de Covadonga um, is a stage that well brought 
came back to my uh, mind, certainly listening to that montage, because we we uh, didn't go up Lagos to Covadonga. We went out on the course. And, uh, well, somebody we heard from earlier, Pavel Sivakov, had a big role to play that day, helping Egan Bernal, who was in the position in the Vuelta of a sort of almost a kind of outsider. Uh, 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 he, he rode a very attacking race, even though he wasn't clearly at, at his best. Um, he still troubled a bit by back injury, had COVID after the Giro. Um, wasn't at his best, but uh, he, where well, we were standing on on the on a new climb for the Vuelta, um, Daniel, we didn't know what was going on in the race. We were waiting like everybody else to see uh, who would appear first. And we were pretty shocked when it was Bernal shadowed by Roglic. And it was a key moment in the race. We we kind of saw, a bit like us at Paris-Roubaix, Lionel Women's Paris-Roubaix, where we were, happened to be standing at the point where Lizzie Dagnan attacked and actually accidentally saw the key moment of the race. Here we saw the key moment of what was a pretty exciting stage where Bernal really took it to Roglic and ultimately, you know, Roglic proved that day that he was the best rider in the race, won the stage uh, and went on to win the race. And it was, I mean, as convincing a performance for Roglic at the Vuelta as it had been for Pogacar at the Tour. It was, Rich. And well, before we, I suppose, talk about Roglic and what it meant for him, what it meant for his career, just on the race itself. I mean, we were very positive. I was pretty effusive about what a great race it was. And I suppose we should foreground our review of the Vuelta with some recent comments from the, the Vuelta director, Javier uh, Guillen, who's been talking about, in, it, in his eyes, as you would expect, uh, the Vuelta has now supplanted the Giro as the second Grand Tour. And he talks how, he talked about how identifiable it has become. And that's something we've talked about quite a bit over the last few years, the strength of the Vuelta's identity, um, haven't we? The short stages, the intense stages, the new climbs, the very, very steep climbs. It hasn't always worked. There were a couple of days this year in in the middle week in Extremadura where we had a, what looked like a fantastic route on paper and the, the stages themselves were a little bit disappointing. But generally speaking... This has all this has all made for a really exciting, intense, vibrant brand of racing, and we saw that this year. We saw uh, w- exactly what hadn't been evident at the Giro um, in a lot of stages. That was a fan- that was races at the back and at the front of the race, uh, a race between the peloton containing the GC riders and the. And the break, and and it was often very uncertain until quite late in the stage which one of those two was going to prevail. I mean, there were there were numerous examples of that. I thought the stage in the first week to Cuyera above um, Valencia, which Magnus Court won very narrowly, very narrowly escaped roglification there. That was fantastic with sort of Ineos driving into the final climb and Hugh Carthy and EF um, ed- Education first being blown away. That was really exciting, and then we saw. Uh, a DSM masterpiece, which are not words you know, we heard very often together in 2021, but on the state of Balcon de Alicante, that was another you know fantastic up and down roller coaster day when Valverde crashed out. Uh, the stage to Cordoba, another win for Magnus Court, another great tussle between the the break and the 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 peloton and then the the last stage as well won by Magnus Court um, Nielsen uh, Monf- uh, Monforte de Lemos 
when um, Lawson Craddock did a fantastic job. Um, his, his teammate, and you know that was the, the, they, they were really typical sort of um, reflective of a very very exciting race, and perhaps you know not that much suspense on the general classification. But we also had there as well this great sub subtext subplot of Movistar and obviously you know fresh in our memory were that was the, the documentary that we'd all watched the, the Netflix documentary which had given sort of new layers to our to, to, to how we view that team and you know it, it, it led to plenty of conjecture about what might be going on behind the scenes and and you know we we had all these theories about what might what the relationship might be like between mass and superman and then you know it, it all erupted on that fantastic penultimate stage in galicia when superman lopez got off his bike and i actually spoke to superman to drop in a big name i actually spoke to superman lopez just a few hours ago um and he spoke to a few he spoke to a few journalists about that incident and he you know he, he talked about how as far as he was concerned mass was was pretty selfish um not only there but in the the Vuelta in general and Mass had told him not to pull behind him and and although the gap was still quite small 40 50 seconds they effectively told him to sit up and that was when the toys came out of the pram but he he doesn't feel that the incident has changed him he says he's, he sounded pretty unrepentant and pretty sort of determined to just just carry on doing things his way at, at, back at Astana but yeah that was a still superman and not normal yes, man then yeah Yes, but that was a memorable, memorable day, wasn't it? It was a memorable backdrop on this stage designed by Oscar Pereiro, the former tour winner in his sort of backyard in Galicia. Um, you know, I remember the, the all these very unfamiliar climbs that hadn't been used in the Vuelta before, um, not a, an area that has a lot of professional bike racing, sort of, um, and the, 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 the eucalyptus-lined roads. And it was, there was a real intensity to that day as well. And um, I, I would... I would actually sort of subscribe to what Javier Guillen has said. And, and I think the Giro kind of has its work cut out to reestablish um, some of its some of its prestige over the world, I, I think. They're going to be more numerous as Mass picks up and says, OK, if you're going to mess around, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a go myself. And uh, as if to prove that uh, there's life in the old dog yet, uh, Gibbons just gets onto his wheel as well and counters. Fantastic. Biscara is going again. Big launch of an attack. Now then, 2.4 from home. What a skirmish, Sean, we've got at the very last here. Bravery being laid on the line almost constantly. What have you got to put on the table? Adam Yates goes again here. Mass uh, on his case. Roglic following on, as you can this see. Absolutely amazing. 300 meters to go, and Clément Chapuzin has has mugged the field. Still no sign of anybody to stop him. He's got there. He's done it. Clément Chapuzin surprises everybody, and it's Roglic that's going to come home behind him for second place here in some bonus seconds. Likewise, uh, third place for Yates. Mass then a gap to Hague. What a finish. Yeah, I think the Vuelta this year was almost Giro-esque in the number of stories it threw up throughout the whole race. I mean, you've mentioned Magnus Court and Michael Storer. I thought they were two um, 
ongoing racing stories. I'd add to that the battle between Jasper Philipson and Fabio Jakobsen in the sprints. Jakobsen especially because he was coming back from that terrible crash. And then to throw another curveball into that, the, the, the minor beef with his own teammate Florian Seneschal midway through the race as well. Uh, Lopez, of course, you mentioned. Um, and an honourable mention for Antomarche as well as one of the smaller teams that often get sort of washed away a bit as... Uh, you know, soft brake fodder, Ryan Taramay's stage win and uh, the the couple of days in red and particularly the way he lost the jersey. So unfortunately, um, the flip side of that was giving Kenny Ellison, King Kenny, a day in the red jersey. And then they came again with odd Christian Eiking holding the red jersey for almost a week. And obviously he is now joining EF Education Nippo next year. And although there wasn't the, the sense of drama with the GC, um, so that was similar to the Giro because I don't think we ever felt that uh, Movistar were going to threaten, even though they had two riders, Mass and Lopez, very well positioned. Uh, Roglic was, you know, firmly in control and it was almost sort of letting the jersey go out and calling it back in again um, as and when he fancied. But I still thought there was a, a lot of interest in the GC largely because of Bahrain victorious as well. Jack Haig, really impressive performance getting on the podium. And Gino Maida, who had won the stage in the Giro earlier in the season, you know, a solid GC ride. Um, so, yeah, I would give the Welter uh, the edge over the Giro this year. But the Tour de France for me is, uh, you know, several levels ahead, um, even though the, the GC gap between first and second was the biggest of the three. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, last year I should uh, write a speech for, for my first uh, Tour de France victory, but uh, I didn't know how to write it, so uh, also this year I said, okay, I'm going to speak from the, from the heart and uh, just say what I, what I have to say. Yeah, it's just, uh, I'm super happy. Thank you, everybody. I mean, when you look at the three Grand Tours this year, there is something that is slightly curious about them. There's something that's only happened once since the Armstrong era this year. Do, do you either of you know what that might be? Um, is it something to do with the margin of victory? No, it's the fact that all three winners had previously won Grand Tours. So they're no first-time Grand Tour winner for the first time since 2016 when Nibali, Froome and Quintana were the, uh, the three Grand Tour champions. And, and that's they're the only two occasions that it's happened since Armstrong retired um, in, well, retired the first time round in, in 2005. Interesting against the sort of backdrop of, of last year when this time last year we were talking about how you know it, the the sport had almost gone sort of tabula rasa there's another latin phrase um it was that the decks had been completely cleared and it was as though a completely new cast of characters had had emerged and everything was going to be different and you know well, we know the season that Theo Gegenhart had a, a sort of unfortunate season as far as the Grand Tours are concerned, Jai Hindley as well. And, you know, even you could argue Mark Hershey, I know he wasn't a general classification contender, but there were a few of those names that really looked as though they were going to be very much part of the Grand Tour furniture, um, didn't have the best year in 2021. But when you put those three Grand Tours together as well, um, and consider as we are that the three grand tour galacticos were the winners 
on the podium, you'd probably put, and it, it kind of mirrors what you're saying about the, the standing of the three races. It would be Pogacar and the Tour on step one, Roglic and the Vuelta on step two, and Bernal and the Giro on step three. But the question is, how much higher is that step that Pogacar is currently standing on? You know, it's it's hard to imagine Bernal or Roglic beating him. Um, but what, and Vauters, Jonathan Vauters talked, uh, you know, speculated about the potential um, threats, the banana skins that might lie in front of him. Uh, what do you think, Daniel? It's, it's a really interesting question. And I tried to, you know, maybe think about other sports and other figures that have dominated other sports or, or even other figures that have dominated cycling and where they either did or didn't come a cropper. And, um, you know, we talk about the, the dynasties, the great dynasties in professional cycling. But, you know, some of those, they changed in nature quite early on in, in their timeline you know eddie Merckx would argue he would tell you that after 1969 that was his first tour de france that he had a crash in blois on the track and he was never the same again and in fact he's he did become more conservative but he still won um four more tours de france he ended up winning five giri d'italia he won the vuelta he was to the outside he looked very much like the same rider um laurent fignon was another rider who could potentially looked as though he was going to go on and establish you know this great long reign in the Tour de France he'd won two very young then he developed an Achilles tendon problem which then probably um thwarted his his hopes of of doing precisely that and even Rich you know Bernardino um he had terrible knee problems the same and, yeah and who knows who knows how well, long his first his first two to 78 and 79 were his most convincing he had the knee injury in, in 80 and he became a much more conservative right he still won another three tours but he won them in a much more in a very different way far less cavalier and a more calculating way for which he got a lot of criticism at the time so the 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 path to sort of all-encompassing long-term domination is sort of strewn with well with potential pitfalls and it will be for Pogacar I mean we heard from Joe Dombrowski earlier talking about money that's obviously a, a concern for everyone hunger I mean I when I when I said I thought about other sports I was trying to think of someone in another sport who has displayed the same you know Pogacar's superpower as far as I'm concerned if we're talking about sort of soft factors if we're talking about personality his his superpower is this sort of nonchalance and this kind of carefree this youthful and um, playfulness and and I couldn't really think of someone in another sport for whom that has been the real you know they're almost their defining trait and their weapon because I think it is a weapon for Pogacar and I, and I don't know what the the sort of the shelf life is on that. Can you still be like that? Can you still have that demeanor, that attitude at, at age 28 or 30 if you've already won six Tours de France? Um, I, I'm not quite sure. I think the biggest danger to Pogacar's run at the Tour de France is if he is sidetracked and, and him and his team are tempted to fall for the kind of, uh, you know, the 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 sort of thing that Mauro Venni was saying about how, oh yes, it's all fine to win the, keep winning the Tour de France, but the real challenge is to win the Giro or the Welter. I mean, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, Alan Piper made the point 
uh, when I was talking to him that, you know, the Tour de France is the biggest event and that will remain Pogacar's focus. Um, he, he doesn't need to add the Giro and complicate things next year, for example, or, you know, he might go to the Welter, um, you know, if, if he feels like it or if the, the Tour hasn't gone 100% his way or, or whatever, but he can afford to focus 100% on the Tour de France uh, in terms of the Grand Tours. And I suppose the challenge for the other two is how do they step into the Tour? And um, when I say the other two, I mean Bernal and Roglic, knowing that they're going up against a rider who, you know, who could beat them quite comfortably if he's uh, on form and avoids, you know, the usual uh, pitfalls of illness and injury. And so I suppose we're in a kind of phase now, aren't we, where, you know, Bernal's won the Giro, Roglic has won the Welter, Pog is the reigning double tour champion. And it's a bit like um, half a generation ago when we had the, the four riders, um, Contador, Froome, uh, Quintana and Nibali, who had, you know, all won different Grand Tours. And we were kind of craving them going up against each other in their best form at the Tour de France. And I suppose that's the thing that, that we'll all be looking forward to next year is will we see Bernal and Roglic at their best trying to take on Pogacar? And then maybe, you know, with a concerted, you know, challenge from different directions, maybe that will um, unsettle Pogacar and give him something additional to think about. But, I mean, this year's victory was, well, I mean, it was uh, it was commanding, wasn't it? And, you know, you said how far above is that step, Rich? Well, it's a kind of a, it's like a toddler trying to jump up onto, a, you know, onto a fridge. Just a couple more things, um, Chaps, final things on Pogacar. Um, I do think, Lionel, you talked about him being sidetracked. I think his versatility is, is, a, is an advantage and it's a bulwark against the pressure of... You know, we've had riders in the past and Armstrong was one of them, but he obviously overcame it where everything is ridden on the Tour de France and it, all of the pressure has been heaped on the Tour de France. Pogaccio is going to win other races. He's going to win classics and not everything rides on July. And I think that will be an advantage. And I also just think that as a rider, he has this great gift of speed and fast finishing. And the way that Grand Tours have gone in the last few years, there's a real premium on that. And, uh, and you know, he's picked up, a, whether it's bonus seconds or whether it's dropping people in the last kilometre of, of mountain stages, even when he's not necessarily been absolutely zinging. Um, I think that's a huge advantage in something he's clearly got over Bernal, less so over Roglic. Well, listen, you out there might have questions uh, about what's happened to the Grand Tours this year, what's going to happen next year. Maybe you want to know what's going on at Team DSM, you know, with uh, Tish Benoit, the latest rider to leave there. Um, you know, what will Mark Cavendish's programme look like next year at the Koenig Quickset? Will he move into the, the team car the year after? Who knows? These are all potential questions for our press conference episode next week. Uh, a reminder, if you've got one, record it and send us the audio file, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. We've got these friends specials coming up, our Tour de France audio diaries from 2020 and 2021 for friends of the podcast, and then our Christmas selection box between Christmas and New Year. And those episodes are coming together nicely. Sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com to become a friend of the podcast. We'll be back next week with our press conference episode. I'm off for a curry. Uh, thank you very much, Lionel Burney. Cheers, Richard. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Chuck. You've been listening to The Cycling Podcast with Lionel Burney, Daniel Freib and Richard Moore. 
To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Hugh Owen. 